This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 75, The Art of Sequencing. If you're a newer teacher, sequencing might feel overwhelming at times, and having some structure can be very grounding and helpful. And if you're not a teacher, don't worry, this episode is still for you. Don't go anywhere. By having some knowledge, some behind-the-curtain kind of information about sequencing can help you identify and choose the right teacher for you. And it might also help you create a container for your own self-practice, give you direction, and encourage you to step on the mat just more regularly. So for this episode, I sat down with Jason Crandall. Jason is a natural teacher and author with more than 20 years of experience. Named one of the teachers shaping a future of yoga by Yoga Journal, Jason has been an in-demand teacher at conferences around the world for more than a decade now. Considered a teacher's teacher, Jason has thought on countless teacher training faculties, led trainings globally, and regularly presents teacher training content at esteemed conferences, so I really thought he was the perfect guest to talk about sequencing today. If you enjoy this podcast, you can continue to get inspired and learn even more with a premium subscription. As a member, you get early access to regular episodes, a ton of exclusive audio and video content, and the ability to request the exact kind of episode you need to continue to deepen your practice. This subscription is on Patreon, so you can also contribute to the community. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans like you to support creators like me in sharing everything yoga has to offer with the world. Sounds good? Visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat and become a premium member. And at the same time, you're supporting me in the creation of this podcast, in the production of this podcast, so I really appreciate you. I say thank you in advance. All right, you ready? Let's get to today's episode with Jason. Hi, Jason. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Erica. Thanks for having me on. So, Jason, for listeners that don't know you very well, can we start by you telling us a bit about yourself and your yoga journey as a little intro? Yeah, sure. So let's see. I am solidly in my middle-aged years, if I'm <laughs> lucky. Actually, I'm 46. I was thinking about this the other day. That's presuming I make it all the way to 92. <laughs> so I might be beyond middle age. But anyways, um, I've been practicing for a little over half of my life now and teaching for 23 years, 24 years. So again, about 50% of my life. I began practicing in the mid nineties. It was a requirement. It's kind of a long story that is not that interesting, but um, it was a requirement for my graduation. I just kind of needed the hours. So Hmm. um, I was dragged into yoga, somewhat kicking and screaming (laughs) and um, it just worked really well for me. And I didn't have any other career aspirations. So when I just, kind of fell in love with the practice of yoga, I decided, Hey, maybe I'll teach this stuff. I always wanted to be a teacher, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't sold on what that subject matter would be or what the environment would be. Mm -hmm. And this just, this just kind of swept me away and, um, I haven't looked back. Mm, That's amazing. Um, some of your main teachers were Rodney Yee, Richard Rosen, and Ramanam Patel. Is there one yeah. thing that you've learned from each of them that are kind of part of your teachings today that really stuck with you through the years? Yeah, you know, starting starting with the the smallest influence to the greatest influence. Mm-hmm. Um, Ramanam Patel is is probably the smallest influence. I had the the of those three teachers the. Um, the least amount of time with him. That was just a few years and it was only like a class per week. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a, it was a smaller interaction. Um, But I think from Ramanan, one of the main things that I learned was um, just the deep, profound and unrelenting technical side of Iyengar yoga. Mm. Um, From Richard, it was, it was, uh, Ramanan was Richard and Rodney's primary teacher. Mm. So there's so right so there's there's lineage here. So from yeah. Richard, it was also a lot of a lot of intensive technique, but Richard is such a scholar of the yoga tradition. So um, Richard really facilitated a deeper understanding not just of asana technique, but also the philosophical parameters and 
I won't say that Richard taught me a sense of humility and decorum and um, self-deprecation because I already, like those are all already personality traits mm-hmm. of mine. Um, but I think that my experience with Richard let me know that those parts of me were appropriate and good and useful in the yoga world. Mm. Um, and then, and then from, from Rodney, you know, I, I think, I think I learned the most important things, uh, from Rodney, which was not the technique, but the process of inquiry and the need for critical thinking and this very, um, this very, self-reflective self-inquiry based process of questioning what what others believe to be true but also what we believe to be true through practice Mm. um and you know just rodney would say things like you know never answer a difficult question in simple or quick terms you know Mm. spend time with it um and so i think the other thing that i got from rodney was just a dedication to practice. There's the dedication to practice, to discovery and to revision and evolution. You know, those, those teachers, I, I think people that don't understand Iyengar yoga, but only see it from the outside, see it as this very strict and static thing. Mm-hmm. It is strict, but it is not static. Mm-hmm. That community never, literally never says we do this because Guruji did this 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a lot no, of creativity in the research of the detail and the why and the how things work. An extreme amount and it keeps evolving. Right. And, and, you know, there's so many people in that world of really high level skill, but also analysis, you know, you, there's, there's high level teachers that are also engineers that are doctors. So they're not, they're not kind of resting. Uh, they're not trying to get authority through age. They're not saying mm-hmm. this is a timeless and unbroken chain, right? Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not saying like, <clears throat> well, this is the telephone that this was the telephone that, you know, was invented by Graham Bell or Edison. I don't actually know who invented the telephone, by the way, but I feel like by throwing out Graham Bell and Edison, I'm pretty good. <laughs> they're not like, this is the thing, you know, it's like, no, yeah. these things change, these things evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not, they're not stuck in these age old tropes. Um, but they, they continue to, um, inquire. That doesn't mean they're not, that doesn't mean it's not a strict and at times kind of like can be a little dour in that world, but, um, it's not, it's not unchanging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that process of self-inquiry and questioning you learn is what is keeping you today kind of fresh and always interested and motivated to keep going? A hundred percent. Like I literally 100%. I feel like the combination of having um, an incredibly good technical education, but also an education that says, Hey, don't, don't memorize this technique, use this technique to continue to grow and evolve helps me be a problem solver. Mm. So I'm not thinking to myself, Oh, I memorized this in my teacher training course in the year 2000. And so I'm just still saying it, Yeah, you know, it, it, it's more like, okay, I wasn't just given technique. I was given the critical thinking skills uh, and the impetus to continue to inquire So I'm not going to look at triangle pose, for example, and say, okay, there's a singular way to do triangle pose. I'm going to say, okay, given all of my technical understanding of triangle pose, but also how bodies work, how is this triangle pose working in this particular body? So it it gives me, I I have the tools to be innovative and creative. Um, And I, and I think to be innovative and creative, you, you need really good foundational tools and foundational skills. Yeah. Um, and I, right. And I'm just thankful that, um, that, yeah, that I have that, um, that I have had that exposure to those teachers that have facilitated that. And I also think that that probably really influenced the way you teach vinyasa today, because it is different than average, you know, just flow teacher. There is an emphasis on the alignment and how the body works and the technique. So Why is that important for you to not only know it for yourself, but also share it? Yeah. If if you, if you take like a big step back, right. Mm -hmm. If you take a big step back and you look at some of the evolution of 
of the yoga asana practice. Um, you see these kind of schools that were pretty siloed off, right? And and I'll just mm-hmm. I'll just select two, right? Which is you have the Ashtanga world and you have the Iyengar world. Yeah. And for a long period of time, those were really siloed off. And each one of those worlds were exceptional at some things mm-hmm. and not exceptional at other things. So for example, you wouldn't go to an Iyengar class because you primarily wanted to flow. Yeah. But in the same way, you would not go to an, an Ashtanga class because you primarily wanted to learn asana technique. Yeah. Right. You just wouldn't do that. Like, and, and that's not saying that there's no movement in Iyengar. And it's also not saying that in the Ashtanga world, they don't know anything about where to put a part of the body. Of course. But if you, right. But if you wanted to like go a little bit more deeply into postural nuance, um, you would go into the Iyengar world. If you wanted to go a little bit more into continuity of breath and movement, you'd go a little bit into the Ashtanga world. Right. So we had, um, she has since passed away, but Matias Radi mm-hmm. and Chuck Miller, neither of which is interesting when, when Mati, um, passed away, it really dawned on me that I think that Monty is the most influential yoga teacher of the modern generation, the, mm. of the, of the modern, of the modern Western generation. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't want to get like into involved, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to yeah, cross yeah. lines here, but in terms of like what we see, when we see yoga asana as a contemporary tradition in yoga studios, um, globally, it's not Western, it's globally. What, what we see is, the influence of Mati, mm-hmm. which I think she's the mo- she's the most influential like modern teacher, but she was never my teacher. I knew her, mm-hmm. um, and we respected and appreciated each other. But but I'm saying that someone who I have no close relationship to, I, I think is the most influential because she brought together those silos. Yeah, where she where, right where she really started to say, hey. We we might have to make a little sacrifice. Actually, no. She she was totally unwilling to sacrifice. But <laughs> yeah, I was going she, to say she, I don't think she would have said that. Right? No, but she she was she was willing to. I think not so much see these as like these um, irreconcilable differences. Right? She was able to kind of mm-hmm. sneak Iyengar technique and sensibilities into the continuity of Ashtanga's cadence. Yeah, like finding a middle path and so, between those. And so that right, and so that brings me to to how to what you asked me, which is, I think it's really hard to teach flow and to also teach technique. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. It's a it's truly a dilemma. Like it is a true dilemma. Um. I am, and I am a little bit more willing to, um, you know, probably compared to Matsi, like I'm probably even more kind of liberal in my willingness to be like, okay, let's not so worry about this detail today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. more, I'm more, com- I'm more compromising. Yeah. Um, but, it, but in that way, it's just like, I'm just extremely pragmatic, um, so to me, the way I teach is, is I, I'm not even saying like, I'm trying to blend Ashtanga and Iyengar. I'm not. I am trying to give us good, sustainable, technical proficiency, but also some movement. So, right. So, so, the, so those are my, those are like the dual qualities that I'm always trying to give. Um, and those things taken to their extreme are antithetical to each other. Mm-hmm. But if they're not taken to their extreme, if they're blended um, the right way, they're, they're, they set up for a really nice experience. Mm-hmm. I agree. One thing I did with Mari, I did a few workshops with her and we worked on just Sun Salute A for three hours. And totally. So- <laughs> of course. Yeah. So yeah, it's in details for sure. Yeah. And that kind of thing, you know, that, that thing is generational because at, like as you proceed through each generation, it gets harder and harder. I think to spend three hours on Surya Namaskare. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like our relationship to time. I think about this all the time. Like especially because of our phones. Like I can arrive anywhere in any city, pretty much on Earth, touch two buttons on my phone, and there would be a car to pick me up in less than five minutes to take me somewhere. Yeah. So like our relationship to the, to development and learning is we're just not at a sustainable time scale. So it's harder 
to do that kind of like deep investigation in a single thing for a longer period of time. You know, so those are the, the those deep dives are so valuable, but they're they're harder to they're they're harder to uh, help people see the value of than than they ever were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they have so much value at the same time. When totally. um, <clears throat> so when you mix that proficiency and movement together, um, I feel one of the ways you do this as a teacher is by putting so much attention on sequencing because then yeah. you can bring some intention and some action and different you know goals into your practice and yet incorporate them into the flow um i've yes. actually done your sequencing your sequencing training so guys if you're listening which one did you do did you do the one with glow or did you do the one that i've redone i've done the one you redone in the beginning of okay. covid the first one online okay got it got yeah it. yeah yeah So you guys, if you're listening to this and this episode is kind of spiking your curiosity, you should really try this training. I highly recommend it. So I wanted Thank to you. ask you about that. Um, why do you think, other than that idea of bringing proficiency and movement together, why do you think teachers should follow a sequencing method and should commit to that? Let, let me start with what I think teachers should not do. <laughs> right. Um, I think student, I think teachers should not focus first on creativity in their sequencing. I think it's a horrible idea. Um, and, and the, and like the reason why this is, is because there's actually a lot of skills that need to be in place before you focus on creativity. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that creativity isn't important, but I'm saying it, it becomes this buzzword And even in people's 200 hour teacher training program, they come out and they're thinking like, I should have creative sequencing. Mm -hmm. Let me put it to you like this. It's like, imagine that I am just learning to play an instrument. Should I focus on playing that instrument creatively? No. <laughs> imagine I'm just learning to cook. Should I be like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on creative food and wine pairing? No. Mm -hmm. The skills aren't there. There's foundations the to be learned. There. The foundation is not there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and so what a structured sequencing method allows for is it allows the foundational tools and techniques and architecture to be in place so that you then can be creative, right? Yeah. So ultimately like a sequence should be an expression of what you want to teach. I used to say this, like, uh, uh, um, a sequence should be an expression of who you are. And I, and I, I've kind of like. I've downgraded that to some degree. You know what I mean? I've been like, no, 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 no. Like, mm -hmm. let's just make it simple. A sequence should be an expression of what you want to teach on that day, right? And so you decide to yourself, like any educator would, what am I trying to teach today? Mm -hmm. And who am I teaching? And what is the best way to do that? And then you work backwards from there. And then you can start to be playful with, with transitions. You can be playful. Like there's all sorts of little ways you can be creative. Mm -hmm. If you've already identified what is the, like, what are you trying to do today? And if you have the skills and the foundation to do that, then you can be a little bit more innovative Um, because then your creativity doesn't obscure the point. Your creativity doesn't take you down a dark alley <laughs> that that just doesn't actually work. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think another thing that that having a consistent structure and, and architecture and method allows for, and this kind of goes to this conversation that we were just talking about with detail. Mm -hmm. um, all details matter, but not all details matter equally. Like that's one thing to remember. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that if you are trying to teach movement, so if I'm trying to teach a flow-based class or even like a Hoffa class where we do a little bit of everything, if, I'm, if I want some general sense of whole body movement and like feel goodness, but I also want to teach some techniques, then I can't teach too many techniques at the same time, mm -hmm. okay? So... I can decide like, Hey, I'm going to, I, you can, you can be as detailed as you want to be, but you can't 
be extremely detailed about too many different things in one setting. Mm -hmm. So, right. So when you go through like a a good um, fundamental process of learning sequencing and architecture and development, you realize like, oh, I don't have to try to teach every technique to my student in every pose in every class. And honestly, that's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible, right? But while also I'm trying to get them to flow and listen to a playlist or what, I don't even use a playlist, man. So like, that's a whole nother layer of like, <laughs> seriously, you're going to be creative with this too? What, what, what are people actually going to take away from that that experience? So mm-hmm. I, I think the bottom line is that that's the process that I advocate for helps people know uh, what they're trying to teach on any given day. Mm-hmm. And then, and then do that in a way that can be as detailed or as not detailed as you want, but where you aren't becoming overly neurotic about all of the other things that could be done. It's really what it is. And I've learned this from my wife, Andrea, since before she was my wife, when she was, a, when she worked for yoga journal and she was an editor of mine, mm-hmm. um, is sequence, good sequencing and good teaching should be like should should include a very strong editorial process mm-hmm. and we have to consider how people learn and people don't learn if you just like shotgun blast a million different things yeah. it, it, you you have to be specific and honed and consistent um, with certain things in order for people to actually learn those things yeah and this is where the detail becomes important or your selection of the detail because it's with the repetition that the students can build some skills Exactly. So if you have a million details, there's no skill to be built because you're just going in all direction and there's no like, you know, focus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it helps students in their own commitment to the practice? Their own personal practice? Yeah. Yeah. I think these are kind of different beasts. Um, I think we have a different internal relationship to them. So I I think what happens... um, Okay, there, there's like a there's like a, a 99%. I, this is a great thing about teaching yoga, right? You make up percentages and numbers. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is the like the lack of that. I am using science so unscientifically when I make up a number like this. Okay, so let, let me let me undo that. One of the things that teachers don't know before they become teachers mm-hmm. is that when they become teachers, their personal practices forever changed Mm. and not necessarily for the better Mm. and certainly not for the better in the short run. In the short run, you're going to go through all sorts of growing pains because you are, especially if you're a full-time teacher, I think it's a little bit different if you are a part-time teacher, but if you're a full-time teacher and you're grinding out and let's just think about like pre COVID because that's, I think just an easier thing to wrap our head around Mm -hmm. is that especially pre-COVID, if you're, a, if you're a full-time teacher or trying to be, you're probably teaching somewhere between 12 and 24 public classes per week. Yep. Um, they're not in a row. They're in all sorts of random places at random times. You know, you're hauling around from one place to another mm-hmm. place to another place. So I, teachers will hate me when I say this, but it's not that you're busy. It's that you, you have an extremely inefficient use of your time, mm-hmm. with, like in the first several years of being a yoga teacher, like ev- ev- for everyone, this is for everyone. Um, and so kind of the last thing you want to do when you have your own free time is your own personal practice. You just, there's just distance from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, it also can, for a lot of teachers start to feel weird, like to, to, um, if you get hired to teach or sub at the studio that you are mostly a student at mm-hmm. a lot of times that feels weird. Mm-hmm. Right. And so teachers, when teachers become teachers, they almost inevitably lose their practice, at least for a period of time. And so I don't know that the sequencing that I'm discussing necessarily relates directly to one's personal practice. I think it, I think it helps one's personal practice if you've already gone through this curve and if you're like four to X number of years in and you're, and you're kind of circling back to your practice, mm-hmm. then yes, I think, 
I think having some intentions and structures in mind is helpful. But I, I think if you're more in that early phase, um, I think that, that you, I think the thing that is distracting you from your practice are other psycho-emotional variables that are playing out um, that aren't, that's not your fault. It's just it's the dynamic. And, and it's something that we're, we're woefully unprepared for in teacher training programs. Like it's mm-hmm. never talked about like, hey, welcome to a teacher training program. I'm glad you loved your yoga practice. It's forever changed. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if if it's just in the beginning, you overthinking it because you're like trying to put in what you've learned and like you're it's just a different relationship to now because you've seen behind totally. a curtain. Totally. And I think I think in the long run, um, being a teacher helps you invest in being a practitioner and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. But there's a but there's a there's a lot of space in between those places. And ideally, there's some good guidance and mentoring in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming back to the sequencing uh, method, can we go over quickly kind of what a template yeah. looks like for you? Like sure. what a full class sure. or a full sequence looks like? Yeah, sure. Um, now, before I do that, I will say this, which you heard me do this a million times, is the template that I'm about to walk you through is not a rule. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of good ways to create content and to develop and teach a sequence. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a foundation place to start. And then you can use self-inquiry and decide what works for you and your students. And yeah, exactly. And as you know, from doing this program, there's a huge self-inquiry bit, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's a little bit, that's probably a little bit more involved. So let's, let's walk through the structure, Mm -hmm. right? So what I always do let, let's, you know what, Erica, let's, let's pretend that we're going to do a 60 minute zoom class. Cause that's kind of what people are doing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That, like Excellent. that's, that, that, that's okay. So, and for what I would say for any level flow based class, now what I'm going to walk you through can very easily be altered for non flow classes. It can be, it can be altered for Hoffa classes with mm-hmm. really minor changes, yeah. but that might be on be beyond. So Let's do a 60-minute, all-levels, flow-based class. Sound good? Sounds great. Okay. Um, So the first thing that I want to do is I want to select some sort of focal points. Like, like, and I'm not necessarily saying like a peak pose. I think that thinking about peak pose sequencing is, is good, but I think that I think we've come along, it's been probably 25 or 30 years since the concept of peak pose sequencing was developed. Mm-hmm. So we should be honing it and refining it and not being limited to it. Mm-hmm. So when I say focal points, that doesn't just mean like a peak pose, but focal points might be regions of the body that we are focusing on. It might be postural techniques that we're focusing on. It might be um, yoga sutra or other themes that we're focusing on. Right. So we want to, and we'll keep it really simple. We want to pick, um, I'm going to pick like three focal points. So this is an imaginary class that I'm going to teach you today. So the first thing I want to do is I want to say, okay, we are going to focus on anterior core strengthening. Mm -hmm. So we're going to focus on strengthening the hip flexors and we're going to focus on strengthening the anterior abdominals. Yep. As we do that, the second focal point is um, bakasana, and then the third focal point is firefly titibasana. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've picked a we've picked a, a region that we're going to emphasize, and then we've focused on kind of two target poses. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say focus on, I just mean literally we're going to focus on it. It's still going to be a balanced, comprehensive class, and you'll see that while we go through the structure, but. The way that I color in the structure is going to be impacted by the uh, by those focal points. So I've decided that that's what I'm going to emphasize, and I usually want the first five to ten minutes to be what I call the preparations. Okay, not not super creative, but the preparations. Mm-hmm. So. This goes back to me telling you I have the I have the dual intentions 
of giving people a good comprehensive breath and movement based experience. And I also want to teach some people some details, Mm -hmm. right? So in that first five to 10 minutes, I'm not starting with flow. I'm starting with movement, but I'm not trying to establish the rhythm or the cadence or the pacing of the class. Um, Because once you establish the rhythm, the cadence, the pacing of a class, it's actually really difficult to get more information in, right? Like as soon as you, as soon as you set the metronome quality of that class, you shouldn't break it Mm. until it's time to like really break it. So that first five to 10 minutes allows me to do some specific anterior core strengthening, right? So I might do in those first five to 10 minutes, I might do um, some reclined anterior core and hip flexor strengthening. I might come up, I might do like some simple modified boat poses. I know that I'm going to play with a couple of arm balances. So maybe also in that first five to 10 minutes, I do just like a simple little wrist opener or a simple little shoulder opener. So those first five to 10 minutes, they're not contemplative. Like we're getting people, we're engaging people's physicality right away. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're doing so with an eye on the reality that we have some focal points. So those first five to 10 minutes, I'm not stretching the hip flexors and doing a deep outer hip opener because that, because that doesn't have anything to do with what we're focusing on. So those first five to 10 minutes, those are a preview. Mm -hmm. That's where I can kind of plant the seeds. I can specifically warm up the body for what we're going to do, but I can also plant the technical seeds of like, Hey, we're going to emphasize these things. Then the next phase of class it's just straightforward sun salutations, right? So for me, that's like half sun salutations. It's various different kinds of lunge salutations. It can be Surya Namaskar A, it can be Surya Namaskar B. I have a specific progression that I prefer when I go into like really deep detail on this. Yeah. But I think for our conversation, what we want to understand is the salutations phase for me is really just to establish timing. It's just to establish that rhythmic connection between breath and movement and establish our pace. Mm -hmm. So those first five to 10 minutes in preparations, I'm not thinking about breath. I'm not thinking about timing. I'm not getting people on that like treadmill of flow. Mm -hmm. I'm establishing the technique and I'm getting into parts of the body. Then once we've laid those foundations, then we have a period of time that is just straightforward salutations. And for me, as a very technical teacher, I give almost no technique. I'm not like in, I'm not like in down dog, lift and broaden sitting bones, externally mm-hmm. rotate the head of the femur, press the base of the big toe and the inner heel down and back. Once in a while, I will. But for the most part, during that salutations phase, I don't want to engage the more like cerebral centers of people's brain. I've already done that. Yeah. I want to just engage timing. Yeah. It's a different um, goal now. Totally different goal. And then the next phase of class, and I don't know how long that's going to be. That might be like, we'll say that's another 10 minutes. That's like 10 to 12 minutes of just like continuity of breath and movement. So now after these two phases, ideally I've had that first phase of introducing some specificity and technique and then separately introducing flow. And then the next phase, though, we start to pull those together. So the next phase is salutations plus standing postures, okay? Mm -hmm. So in the salutations plus standing postures, that's essentially where I'm doing my standing poses, but I'm continuing to route them through salutations. And the example I give is in the Ashtanga world, you do Surya Namaskar A, you do Surya Namaskar B, and then you stop with the salutations, and then you do your standing postures. Mm -hmm. This works really well. I actually love how unfussy it is, but but in my experience, especially in mixed level classes, in mixed level classes, not only do we have mixed levels, but we have mixed physical desires, different different degrees. People have different desires for different degrees of physicality. Mm-hmm. So by by continuing to route the standing postures through salutations, what we can start to do is we can be, bring people back. Let's say they do a standing pose flow and then they step back into down dog. We can now say, okay, you have three options. 
If you need a little rest, take a few moments in child's pose. If you want to stay in down dog, stay in down dog, keep your breath steady. Or if you want to do another chaturanga, up dog, down dog, or locust or cobra or forearm plank, take a few breaths and go ahead and do that on your own. Mm -hmm. So the we are maintaining the consistency of the breath and the tempo, but we're also giving people different opportunities to be more or less physically intense. The stand, not to become too involved, but the standing poses I'm selecting, I'm probably going to be focusing on standing poses mm -hmm. that help develop the focal points that we've established. Of course. So if we think about some of the focal points we've established, one of the focal points we've established is Titibas and a firefly. So one of the main things we need for that is to lengthen our hamstrings and to lengthen our adductors. So I'm probably going to select standing poses that are that are really good at that. So I'm probably going to do more of like triangle, half moon pose, variations from there. I'm probably going to do Parshvottanasana, variations from there. I'm going to be doing the things that are like, that are in that flow, but are helping to prep mm -hmm. those focal points. Then the next phase of class is going to be salutations plus arm balances, okay? And I know that I'm going to incorporate arm balances because I've already established that. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I want to say quickly about this method is if there's anything you're not teaching, like if you're not, the template that I'm getting giving is, is as if in that class, you are going to teach a little bit of all postural categories, but there's going to be all sorts of classes where you're not necessarily going to teach all postural categories. You, yeah. You're not going to include an arm balance, right? But so in this situation, like, we are teaching bakasana. We are teaching titibasana. Um, and so what we're going to do is like now is when that's going to come. So we're probably 30 to 40 minutes into our class by now because the standing poses plus salutations can be a pretty long, nice phase, especially in a mixed level class. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're getting to the arm balances and we have the two focal point poses that we're going to do, bakasana and titibasana. One of the things that I know that I'm going to do is if I have focal point poses and I've been doing things to kind of prep it, we're not just going to do it once. Like this was the other thing about peak pose sequencing too, that used to just drive me insane. Like, okay, we, wait a second. We're going to dedicate an entire 90 minute class to the development of a posture. And then we're going to do that posture once in one plane, mm -hmm. one way. It makes no sense. I agree. Um, you know what I mean? It's just like, hey, we've done all this work. So why don't we see that there's a whole family here? So let's do seated bakasana. Let's do reclined bakasana. Let's do bakasana. Let's do one-legged bakasana. Let's do marchasana A and just kind of pause where we're pinching the knee really strong against the outer, outer ribs. So we get that feel of adducting the thigh. Like there's so many things that we can do. Like if we are really going to focus on it, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Or let's do bakasana one way five times and not try to stay there forever, right? Or if your let's class level is a lot, is not as advanced, then you're really working on all the foundation pieces. And then maybe you do bakasana but, once, but you've worked on every little piece of what makes bakasana what it is. And then you put it all together or you build it up layer by layer. Totally. So it's also a way to make it not as hard if you feel like your students can't really do five variation of bakasana, but... Totally. Yeah. Or, or under those, under those, those same, uh, if it's a less experienced class, that's fine. Well, we'll do Bakasana once, but instead of doing it once, let's actually play with transitioning it, mm -hmm. not staying in it at all, mm -hmm. but let's play with just the transition in and out three or four times. And then let's, and then let's do it. Then let's sit down then let's workshop it. Then let's come back to it. So we know that we know that the, that repetition is so key. Um, And yeah, so we have that. Then we also have Titibasana. Um, we're always going to have alternatives. But I, I think that one of the mistakes with alternatives that often happens is that the alternative isn't as synonymous with the posture as it can be. So, for example, let's say I am, I am doing full boat pose, right? I'm doing full boat pose with my knees straight or my knees bent. All I have to do in either of those situations is take my legs a little bit wider than my hips 
and straight my arms in front of me. So my arms are against the inside of my legs and I'm doing a seated version of Titibasana. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is lay on my back, straighten my legs towards the ceiling, separate them a little bit, lift the head and chest and reach the arms forward through the inner thighs. I'm doing reclined Titibasana. Then I can, I can do those two and then I can do it on my hands. And then what this allows for is the same posture to be done, but in different planes Mm -hmm. so that the people that are proficient get more repetitions of the thing and and refine it even more. And the people that aren't as proficient in Titibasana, they have alternatives to go back to that are unbelievably relevant. Yeah. So, so it, it starts to feel less like a have. Uh, like a has and has not or have and have not situation of like, I can do it or I can't do it. Totally. And something like, you, no, you teach, can do it. Yeah. Something you say in class, cause I've taken your class in San Francisco and I've taken your class on glow is any amount of the pose is the pose. And so totally. I've totally, I've totally stolen that and quote you when I teach, because I think it's really important for people to realize you don't have to do the full blown, you know, yoga journal version to do it. It doesn't matter. You're still working on the same thing. You're still doing the same actions and you're still working on the same goals. Yeah. And it's, it's so, it's so important for us as teachers to convey that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, like the thing that would come after that is in this category would be backbends. Now, if we, if, if using this situation of Bakasana and Titibasana, and then the next thing is back bends. Well, both of those poses are really strong forward bends. Those, those, those postures have really strong spinal and hip flexion. So the next category is back bends. So I'm not going to like blast you into Urdhva Dhanurasana. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a couple of like simple little back bend preparations, like probably low lunge quad stretch, do something to lengthen out the hip flexors, do something to lengthen out the quads, do a couple of really low cobras to like, not shock the system, but to slowly move it back. Um, and then a couple minute progression of backbends. Um, and then after backbends, you know, we're, we're now really coming towards the end of class Mm -hmm. and we have forward bends, twists and closing. Um, now the forward bends and the twists in this setting are probably going to be really brief. I'm probably going to have one forward bend and one twist. I'm just going, because I'm going to have done a lot of those in this particular sequence um, in the development phase. So in the salutations that I've been doing, I will have been doing a lot of forward bend based salutations. I will be doing a lot of forward bend based standing postures. Um, so in this particular sequence, there's not going to be a longer sequence of like seated Pachimottanasana or things, but like one simple seated forward bend, one simple seated twist, or there's ways to do those reclined. Um, and then a little bit of closing. And, and what I've been doing via Zoom for closing, uh, <clears throat> I have always just as like a total personal experience, I have always struggled to do Shavasana in my personal practice. I don't mm-hmm. like Shavasana at home. Um, now that now that is not the case for everyone. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do shavasana at home. I'm being honest as someone that has a 25 year practice mm-hmm. that I still struggle with it at home. So for Zoom, what I do is I just say, hey, okay, we're gonna have three minutes. It's gonna be a little bit on the short side. So if we were in a if we were in the room and we had a 60 minute class, I would do a five minute shavasana. Mm-hmm. But for Zoom, what I do is I do a three-minute Shavasana and I let everyone know a couple of things. Number one, they can do Shavasana. If they prefer, they can do seated meditation. If they prefer, they can take their legs up the wall and Vipri to Karani. And in three minutes, I'm going to close out class. I'm going to say thank you and goodbye and all that good stuff. But you don't need to budge. Mm-hmm. So if you do have the time and want to stay longer, that's on you. Take as much time. That's as you an want. advantage of Zoom right now is that you can take as long as a shavasana you want and not be disturbed. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. So that's the that is the basic architecture, and that architecture proves to be profoundly adaptable mm-hmm. to teaching different things in different ways, and includes a little bit of everything. I agree. That's such good information, guys. In the the training, you'll get way more, and we're literally just scratching the surface. So just to give you like a little teaser, um, yeah, and we get you get so much of the rationale for why all of these things mm-hmm. are this way. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that that's always, I think the last point is like, I never want to teach anyone anything and say, this is the way to do it in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. I want to teach you what I know. I want to give you the rationale for why I do it this way. And then I want to open the door to say, Hey, if you learn something down the, down the road that I don't know, it revise. Mm -hmm. If I learn something down the road that I don't currently know, revise. I think it's, it's, it's actually unacceptable. Um, to be in a, uh, a, a vocation or any setting where in, over the course of a lifetime, we make no development or improvement. Yeah. To, not to the essence of things. Mm -hmm. The essence of yoga is timeless and changes, but to the actual techniques, um, not making an improvement in a, in a, in a technical vocation is, um, to, to my way of thinking is, is not, it's not acceptable. I mean, we are con continuously evolving. So the way we totally. practice should evolve as well. Totally. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to ask you one last thing before we finish. And in the three examples you gave, like the focal points, um, we had poses and we have like a technical action. And I know that yeah. you have a great interest in philosophy, but it's not really at the forefront of how you teach and how you base your sequencing. Those are not usually your focal points. So I just wanted to ask you why you choose to go, you know, choose a physical as an access point. And yeah, yeah. let's go with that. Yeah. So my undergraduate degree is in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so for a long period of time, like in some ways it's the, it's the philosophy and the inquiry that in ways are more interesting to me than, um, uh, than the techniques. I lead with the techniques because I actually believe that the philosophical psycho-emotional parameters are implicit to the process. So what I say by that is like, if we're, if, if we are having, um, you know, if we're, if, if you, if, if you're in a good relationship You don't need to say, I am in a good relationship. You can, mm -hmm. but the relationship tells you it's a good relationship. It's the same thing as that all of the philosophical dynamics of yoga come from the embodied phenomenon of experiencing transcendental yoga states. Mm -hmm. The philosophy of yoga is not purely cognitive or rational. In fact, it's pretty irrational. Um, there are rational things, but the cosmology of yoga and Samkhya are totally irrational. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean, I'm not saying that because I'm in denial of it. I'm saying uh, because it is not rational. It is experiential. Mm -hmm. Those are different. Those are not always the same things. So to me, the actual philosophical essence of the yoga tradition is an embodied sensory experience. Yoga is sensory. It's not cognitive. So, so <clears throat> I can talk about the clashes all day. I can talk about Patanjali all day. I can talk about what I disagree with Patanjali vehemently about what I agree with, but all of that to me is not, to me, actually that gets us more into our cognitive verbal centers and actually into a less embodied mm -hmm. sensory experience of the reality. I understand. So to me, the philosophy is the actual I'm not saying it's the it's I'm not saying the philosophy is the practice of asana but it is the sensory event. It's the sensory experience of coming back home and dispelling some of the um some of the illusions that our mental constructs pr create. So as someone I'll say it another way which is as someone that has extensively taught philosophy and movement I actually find movement is a much more powerful thing than a philosophical recitation of the sutras mm -hmm. for me personally. I think the last thing, the last thing too, is like, it's a mode, right? So when we think about like modes that we're in, it's not always easy to switch modes. So I am as a personality for me to really get deep into uh, the philosophical dimensions of the yoga of the yoga traditions um that's that is a different mindset it's a different brain state mm -hmm. like if we're going to go there to me 
<clears throat> I'm going to go there in a, in a more discursive way, but just just kind of dropping in like a sutra here and there while you're stretching your hamstrings <laughs> is totally fine, but it's less my orientation. Sure. It's more my orientation to like be mindfully physical. And then when it's time to get into the, uh, the, the philosophical dimensions, it's at then, then it's then to me, I'm not saying it's a separate, I'm not saying it's separate, but for me as a communicator, I'm in different modes. Yeah, I understand. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, anything else you want to add before we finish? Like if there's one takeaway you want to leave listeners with, what would that be? Um, I, honestly, nothing. I think just going back to what we we just said, which is the philosophy is like, uh, well, I'll, I'll put it another way, which is like, when you, I, I, I just don't, I, I, I am a little out on a limb here, but I just don't think if you fundamentally believe in the teachings of the yoga traditions, that there is a, that there is a difference between philosophy and sensory and physicality, mm -hmm. that it's all the, right. That it's all the same thing. It's all the same. It's all blended into the same experience. And when we, if, if you're not at a lecture, but if you're, if, if you are working with a teacher who is um, more overtly philosophical in their, uh, in their conversations, what are you doing in class? You're still doing physical things the whole class. For sure. So, right. So it's like, we can talk more overtly about spirituality, but you're still going to do a physical asana class if it's an asana class. Or the asana class can be just completely informed mm -hmm. um, in the background by the philosophical parameters of the yoga tradition. And to me, I think then it just comes down to a preference is that some students are going to prefer Resonate, yeah. the parameters spelled out a little bit more. Other students are going to prefer them to be more implicit to the process but I don't think they're fundamentally different processes. Like I don't think a, a class can be more spiritual or less spiritual. It can only be um, more spelled out in a way mm -hmm. or more spelled out in a different way. Yes. All right. That's really good. Um, I'll put all your info in the show notes, but in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you if they want to ask more questions, they want to take your next um, workshop or they just want to say hello? Jasonyoga.com. Great. I mean, I have social media accounts too, but those those are just trying to get you to jasonyoga.com because that has a ton of content and all sorts of stuff there. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. That was You're very welcome. interesting. Thanks, Erica. <laughs> Bye. Have a good night. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you listen. Come and connect with us on Instagram at On and Off Your Mat Podcast as we revisit every single episode since the beginning. And don't forget, visit patreon.com slash on and off your mat to become a premium member and get your hands on all our exclusive content. Check out the show notes to find out more info about our guest of today, Jason Crandall, or my top five biggest takeaways from this episode. Now, before you go, just a last thank you to Alexander Saba, working in the background, creating the music, editing, and mastering this podcast. All right, once again, thank you for listening in. Until next time. <laughs>